Good afternoon. We talked about dating this Friday, and um, in conjunction with that, I want to talk about singleness today. Actually, let me talk. Let me pray, and then I'll get into everything. Father, we thank you that we can be here together to look at your word, and we depend on you for this time, for our minds to be renewed through your word, for our hearts to be soft, fertile soil for your word, and that's something that only you can do, bearing fruit in our hearts for the purpose of uh, living for your glory and for your name. So be here with us, allow us to understand and receive and digest the word of God in a way that would be practical and helpful in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To function according to certain principles, right? Certain principles, biblical principles, and have a philosophy of dating um, rather than just acting on our desires when it comes to dating. We, we talked about that in Daphnel, and in conjunction with that, we want to talk about singleness because, well, I mean, we're not going to do this series together every year, but I thought once in a while it might be helpful to think about this uh, so that we don't just think of dating in a vacuum by itself. Um, biblical principles in dating, I guess, would make more sense if we see it in the context of a biblical view of singleness, right? Why am I supposed to look, look at dating like that and function by certain principles that guides us in the Bible? Because overall, in our lives, there are certain things that the Bible tells us about even singleness as a whole. And dating kind of fits into that, in the same kingdom perspective, okay? So we want to think about singleness today. There, I recognize that there are different types of people here. Um, there some are married here. Some are unmarried but in relationships. The majority of you, I think, are still single. Some are single and content. Some are single and want to be in a relationship. And I'm, in addressing this and talking about this, I'm thinking about everyone as we talk about singleness. I'm not just talking to singles. But thinking of everyone, I think there are different ways that this applies in the community of God, different ways that it applies to everyone in our church. I got married when I was 33, so I guess you can say I've had some experience with singleness. Um, I was happy being single for, for most of that time, you know, like for, for a while. But I also experienced some of those feelings of being single and lonely. Because I saw, you know, my friends getting married and things like that, and, and, and I would go to weddings, and there were certain times when I went to a wedding I didn't want to be there. Uh, and now I'm married. So I guess I've lived through the various stages of singleness, dating, marriage, and um, I've also walked through those stages with various people over the years. So I want to share some thoughts related to this topic today, and we'll look at some scripture and biblical principles about marriage and singleness, and, um, and we'll do that. And then, actually, most of the content here are just my pastoral comments to singles as well as married people about how to view singleness, how to walk through singleness with the kingdom perspective. Okay, so 
That's what we'll do today. First, the goodness of marriage. The goodness of marriage. These are some very common verses that we see about marriage in the Bible that you hear often whenever, pretty much, when you go to a wedding. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God says it is not good, not good for man to be alone. And God's answer to what is not good was marriage. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God made marriage. God brought the man and woman together, and this was God's idea, and it was good. And this verse, actually, right, chapter two, uh, Genesis 2.24, is actually quoted in Ephesians 5, right? That's the exact verse in Ephesians 5.31, where Paul says marriage that God designed is supposed to reveal something. He quotes the same verse in verse five, chapter, Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says marriage was designed by God to picture the relationship between Christ and his church, his bride. Jesus sacrificed his life for his people out of his love for her. So human marriage has this meaning to picture the relationship between Christ and his church to basically display the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, based on these verses, it seems like marriage should be everyone's goal. It seems like God wants everyone to be married. But then Paul says something that almost seems contradictory to what he just said in 1 Corinthians 7, the goodness of singleness. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Whoa. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, you betroth, if, you, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Will do even better. So Paul, the same person who wrote Ephesians, right, saying that marriage pictures Christ in the church and displays the gospel, the same person is clearly saying here that it is better not to get married. So why does Paul say marriage is great in Ephesians 5? And then say, try not to get married here. He goes on to say in the same chapter in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. 
It seems like Paul's speaking in hyperbolic terms here, but essentially he's talking about living with the kingdom perspective in mind. He's saying the fact that Jesus came, that he inaugurated the kingdom of God, the fact that he died, rose to secure the hope of the kingdom of God, now all of those things changes how we view life here on earth. We now realize that this life on earth is not everything. This world is passing away, and our hope is in the future fulfillment of the coming kingdom. And in that context, one of the examples that Paul points to is to goods and possessions. Those who buy live as though they had no goods. So believers in Jesus Christ, the, the, so the reasoning goes like this. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are able to forsake money in this world. Why would anyone forsake money when there's so much money to make in this world? And when there's so much, so much great stuff that you can buy with the money that you make in this world? We choose to forsake money because this world is passing away. And there's a new world that's coming that has very little to do with money. And he's saying the same, that same principle applies to marriage. There are, yes, there are joys and pleasures in marriage. So why would anyone forsake that institution of marriage? Because there's a greater marriage coming in the fulfillment of the coming kingdom in Jesus Christ because Jesus will one day return and marry his bride, his church. So initially, it seems like Ephesians 5 and this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, it seems like they're contradictory, but they're really saying the same thing. Paul says marriage is good, but the reason why marriage is good is because it points to Jesus. It points to the gospel. It points to the coming kingdom. And he's saying that singleness is good, for that, same re- for that same reason that marriage is good. The single person who either voluntarily or involuntarily refrains from marriage for the purpose of living for the kingdom of God shows that their hope is in the coming kingdom of God and in the marriage of the bridegroom. That person's life who hopes in the coming Christ says that the real marriage The ultimate marriage is the one that is with Jesus, that that marriage is worth waiting for, that that's what he or she is living for now. So for the kingdom purpose, there's a goodness of marriage and a goodness in singleness. Okay, now, sin's distortion of marriage and singleness. So marriage and singleness are both good avenues to live for the kingdom of God, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there are many different ways that we can seek first his kingdom in our lives. We can do this in marriage, and we can do this in singleness. But the point is, no matter what your life situation is, seek first the kingdom of God. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I'm sure many of you have read, in that book, he quotes Stanley Hauerwas, who says, 
that single Christians, it's a quote, he says, the single Christian adults were a startling witness to the coming kingdom in that ancient world. They show that their hope and significance was not in family or heirs, but in the kingdom. So what he's saying is, in a world where family and having heirs, in a world where that was everything, these Christians who witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ began to see the institution of marriage, began to see their family, they began to have a different worldview about those things. And, and because they had a different perspective on it in light of the kingdom of God, they lived differently. And he's saying that was such a powerful witness because that way of thinking was so different and so radical to a world where family and marriage and having children was everything. It made the hope of Christ real to people who did not know Jesus and didn't have a reason for that hope. And Tim Keller goes on to say that both singleness and marriage are signposts. He calls them signposts that point to the kingdom of God. Some display Jesus. Some display Jesus and the church through marriage. Some point to the coming Jesus through singleness. And the point is that every church needs both married Christians and single Christians because the world needs to see both signposts that point to the kingdom of God. Now, the problem is we often don't think like that about marriage and singleness. This is often the way we think. We want to be happy. The goal in life is to be happy. So we use singleness or marriage to attain maximum happiness. Usually it goes like this. We stay single as long as we're happy. And when we kind of like reach that point in our lives where we think getting married will make us happier, then we try to get married. So marriage becomes a means to attain more happiness. We use marriage to basically serve ourselves and fulfill our desires. And obviously now, that kind of thinking causes many problems. If we get married with that kind of attitude, with that kind of idolatry of marriage in our hearts, we'll probably be initially happy after we get married, but eventually we'll run into disappointments in our marriage because we're placing a hope in marriage and in our marriage partner that they cannot support. And obviously, if marriage is all about just my fulfillment and my happiness, then we're going to fail to picture the purpose of marriage, which is displaying the gospel. And also, if we're single with that idolatry of marriage in our hearts, then we'll likely be miserable. If we really, that, really believe that marriage is what's going to make us happy, it's going to complete us, but I don't have anyone, then of course we'll feel discontent because our hope will be in, in this kind of unmet dream of getting married. Let me ask you this. What would you do if the Apostle Paul was, a, was the pastor of your church and what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 was his regular message to you? Right? Every, every week he stands up here and he says, this world is passing away. 
So don't live for this world. And you're like, oh, I agree with that. Amen. And all the, you know, everyone say amen. So he's, and then after that he goes, getting married is not option number one. It's better if most of you choose singleness. And he's preaching this every week. And all the married people will be like, amen, preach it. And then there might be some, peop some people who are single, so undivided for God. They'll be like, yeah, preach it, Apostle Paul. But then most of the single people probably, like, leave the church, you know? Oh, man, this is too much for me. Because for many of us who are single, getting married is a non-negotiable for you. Even without ever having sought God's will about it. But then, like, suppose you stayed at Apostle Paul's church for a while, and you kept listening to him. You might not like it, but his teaching will eventually probably expose the sin of elevating marriage and family in our hearts beyond what God intended. For married people, it'll probably make them realize that maybe they're making too much of their their marriage and family. Maybe, maybe marriage and, and, you know, living for the happiness in marriage is just elevated way too much. For single people, it'll probably help them realize that they're too concerned about getting married. And we'll probably realize that we really need to think differently and stop elevating marriage and overvaluing marriage. How can you not when... The biblical message is live in light of the kingdom of God because the, coming, the kingdom is coming. And uh, I mentioned this at FNL, but I think it's worth repeating because I love repeating stories. Um, I heard this, someone say this once. He said when he was a youth pastor, and this is like in the context of one of those retreats, you know, like the last night of retreat when everyone's really excited. To, and pumped up to live for God. His pastor said he would ask his youth group students, like, how many of you are willing to live for Christ? And to that, in that emotional moment, I guess, like so many people raised their hands. Yes, I want to live for Christ. And he said right after that, he would ask the question, how many of you are willing to die for Christ? And many of the people who raised their hands would put their hands down. He said only a couple people would raise their hands. And his point in asking those two, two questions was to teach something. He would, right after that, basically say, I just asked you the same question in two different ways. There are two different ways of asking the same question. Are you willing to give yourselves fully and completely to the Lord? If you say no to dying for Christ, then you're really saying no to living for Christ. And I think it's that same thing that can be said of marriage and singleness, right? Like how many of you are willing to live for Christ through marriage, right? If God ordained marriage into your life, how many of you are willing to live for God through that calling of marriage? And many people will raise their hands. But really, ask yourself that question right now. How many of you, like would you really be willing to live for Christ through a life of singleness? Like God is here handing out the calling of singleness. 
There's an altar call, right? How many of you want to step forward? Here's a calling of singleness. There'll be many blessings that come along with this calling. God is calling for volunteers. He needs like 10 just to display a signpost of singleness to this world. 10 volunteers. How many of you want to live a life of singleness for the kingdom of God? Honestly, like, how many of us would, like, volunteer for that? I'll live for, live for God through marriage, but not so much in singleness. But again, at the heart of it, they're really the same questions. Both questions are asking, are you really willing to live for the glory of God no matter what he calls you to? But we think that marriage or singleness means living with companionship or living in loneliness, living in happiness or living in sadness. If we're unwilling to live for Christ in singleness, we're probably not going to do a good job of really living for Christ in marriage because there's, a, there's an unsurrender to some degree within our hearts. So whether we're single or married, for all of us, we need to expose the idolatry of marriage in our own hearts. And this is why, and this is the same reason, this is why we make it so hard for people to do singleness well in the church. If you have a heart, if it's in you, a heart that elevates and idolizes marriage, then you'll likely pity singleness. You'll say things like, when are you getting married? Still haven't found anyone yet? Why are you being so picky? What's wrong with you? Because we think that marriage is the goal and singleness is a season to be endured until you get to that goal. And there's always, there are always some people who are married who try to set up singles, right? And it's often with this perspective of, like, you're still in the dark side. And I want you to come over to our side. Come over to the light. And you'll see, like, how beautiful and sunny and bright it is over here. It's kind of like this. When you're fasting, you're fine. You're, fasti- you're fine fasting by yourself in your room. But then while you're fasting, if you go out to, to a restaurant with your friends and you're just, you know, you're just there for fellowship and companion, you're just going to drink some water, zero calories. While you're out there with your friends fasting with everyone else, everyone else is eating, enjoying, and loving their food then it makes it harder for you to fast. Eating is good, but fasting is good too. And you were fine fasting for the Lord. You weren't even that hungry. But now you really do believe that you're hungry because of all the the eating people. You see, it makes it harder to live out singleness for God because everyone else seems to be living with a mindset that is so much better to be married. Sam Melbury tells a story. He says this. He says, a friend of mine has an interesting spoon. This spoon has a large hole in the middle. 
new, new uh, PowerPoint person today. There's a large hole in the middle. My friend keeps it in his sugar bowl, waiting for unsuspecting guests to attempt productive engagement with it. <laughs> some will, so they're basically like trying to scoop sugar with this spoon. He says, some will quietly but unsuccessfully persevere with it, not wanting to make a fuss and assuming that the fault must somehow lie with them. Others will immediately declare the spoon is ridiculous and insist on something better suited to the task at hand. The spoon, it turns out, is actually an olive spoon. The hole in the middle, olive spoon. The hole in the middle is to drain the fluid as you lift the olive to your mouth. You can't make sense of the way the spoon is without understanding what it's for. And you see, that's a good picture of how we don't understand what singleness is for. Paul says singleness is good. It's a good thing for the purpose of living for the kingdom of God. So people who don't understand what their singleness is for are like the people trying to use the olive spoon to scoop sugar. What's wrong with this? Why isn't this working? Why isn't marriage happening to me? And then after a while, this is not normal. Why aren't you getting married? This isn't normal for someone your age. This isn't what a spoon is supposed to be like. This is useless. You have to change the spoon. You have to change your single status. Let me just go to the blank slide. Marshall Siegel um, says this. He says, God sends us into the world when he saves us, not when he watches us walk down the aisle. Marriage does not unlock God's plans and purposes for us. So he's saying that God's purpose in a person's life is not primarily tied to being married or not. Life is about glorifying God. Bearing witness to the gospel that saves. And we can do that just as well when we're single. That's why we need people in the church who picture this well. It's kind of like this. When we see a missionary, like we kind of, you know, here and there have missionaries come and visit us and tell us about their work and they sacrifice so much. They live in difficult circumstances for the sake of preaching the gospel and things like that. They tell their testimonies of their life experience. And then we hear that of how they're going through those difficulties and sufferings to serve others and to serve the Lord. We see that and we think that's a great example for all of us. We see that example and then by seeing that, we realize, oh, I'm not supposed to put my hope in this world. I'm not supposed to put my hope in material wealth. I'm actually supposed to live not for myself, but for God. And that person becomes a signpost for others directing us to kingdom living. And it works the same way with singleness in marriage. We're supposed to see godly marriages and realize, Oh, I see marriage isn't just about being happy. Marriage isn't just about me and my spouse and my kids. I'm supposed to actually use my marriage as a means 
to live for Christ and to display Christ. And in the same way, we're supposed to see godly single people and realize, oh, that's how I'm supposed to live in singleness. I'm not supposed to waste my single ears just basically doing what I want to do because I have the freedom to do so. Oh, I see that I'm supposed to use my time, my resources for God's kingdom. I'm not supposed to, I see, put my hope in marriage. That's what it means by seeing that. That's what it means to hope in Jesus Christ. And in a culture where everyone is drunk on the idolatry of marriage, godly singles can come along and give us a sober reminder that God's people are supposed to live with a, with a holy discontentment in this world, longing for the return of Christ. For the rest of the time, I want to give some practical encouragements and I have several practical encouragements concerning this topic. First, avoid asking, why am I not married yet? You see, when you're single, you hear all kinds of advice from other people. It's because you're too picky. You have to be more open. It's because the guys at, at our church, they're so superficial. It's because your personality is too blank. It's because you have to be more mature. You have to be more this, more that. And the assumption in all of that is you're supposed to have someone by now, right? And another assumption in all of those things is that you're doing something wrong. There's something wrong with you that you have to fix. Now, those things may or may not be true of you. But overall, asking those questions, they're not really, really helpful because there's no formula to getting married. There are people who are really picky, but they got married. There are people who are pretty immature, but they got married. So if you want to get married and you listen to all those people and all those voices, it can get really confusing. I should try to fix this. I should try to be less like this. I should be more like that. And the list is endless when you start thinking like that. Maybe you are too picky. But even if you are picky or cautious, maybe that's an attribute in your character that God built in you because he wants to use you for some reason. So all, just overall, going down that route is not very helpful. Those questions just promote more discontentment. So don't just assume that you're doing something wrong. You might not be doing anything wrong. But what you can know for sure is that God has designated this period of time in your life and called you to be single. People usually have an age number in their minds. By this age, and there's a number in your mind, by this age, people should be married. And if they're still single past that age, that's not normal. But Paul says, what he says about singleness refutes that idea. Just because a person is still single past that age, does not mean that there's something wrong with him or her. They're great people with great character, great faith in God, who are single for a long time because, just because God has called them to singleness. So don't try to figure out a formula to why someone's not married yet. 
God has different purposes and callings for different people. Avoid asking that question. Secondly, God intends marriage and singleness for our sanctification. We generally think that marriage offers an advantage in sanctification. Why? Because married people fight. If I was by myself, I wouldn't fight with myself. But I have someone living with me all the time and different personality, different values about certain things, and so we fight. And of course, when you fight, you got to work it out and reconcile all these things. And because of that, you learn and you grow in your, in your life and you mature. And it's true. Married people can learn different things that they otherwise would not learn if they were not married. And so we read those kinds of principles in marriage books. We talk about that in pre-marriage counseling, and that's all true. But the other side of that is the assumption that it's a disadvantage to our growth if you're single, and that's a wrong assumption. For example, there's a certain inner security that marriage offers. That security is there because there's another person living life right beside you. That person is supportive of you. That person is an advocate for you. So that, having that person walk with you step by step in life gives us a certain security but it's relatively a shallow security because that security comes through from another human being who does not know everything, who cannot do everything. So that means that single people can know a deeper security in life that most married people usually don't because the absence of another person walking next to you in life leads you, forces you, causes you to discover a deeper security in God. It has to, because I have to go to God, because I have no one else to turn to. So whether we have or don't have, God is at work in our lives in both circumstances to sanctify and and grow us, just working in different ways. God makes some people rich. God makes some people poor. God calls some people to marriage, calls some people to singleness. But God's purpose in both circumstances His purpose is growth and Christ-likeness. Again, just works in different ways, different timing in different people's lives. Thirdly, God produces contentment, not by addition, but by subtraction. We're discontent when what we want, what we want, and what we have don't match. This is what I want. This is what I have. There's a gap here. That causes discontentment. So that means there are two ways that we can become content. By first, either getting what you want, right? If what I have increases and I get what I want, then you can be content. Or by changing what you want, right? If your desires come down to here, then I can be content. So either by adding what you want to your life or by subtracting what you want from your heart. But now, If it's like this and you get what you want, you might feel content in the moment, but that does not mean that you've become a content person. It just means that your circumstances now are not exposing your discontent heart. But in that situation, if you submit your desires to God, you can actually become a content person. That's why some of the happiest people in the world are people who have very little. So we should embrace those situations 
when God subtracts. There are some things that we can only learn when what we want is not within reach. We can learn things like the sufficiency of the grace of God in my life through Jesus Christ. If I have everything I want all the time, how can I learn that? If I don't feel the need for Christ, we can personally experience the, 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 the greater worth, the incomparable greater worth of Jesus Christ when we struggle with those kinds of situations. And that's often what God is teaching us, these deeper truths, spiritual truths that God is teaching us through subtraction when we don't have what we want. If our hearts are saying that marriage is the ultimate thing and singleness is the undesired state, we're really saying that God is not enough. So in that, to that person, God might want to use subtraction to disprove that theory to our hearts, to prove to us that Jesus is more than enough. And it's that same principle of subtraction that I would also say God is teaching us through marriage, not only wanting to be married, but through marriage, to marry people. You wanted to get married. You were like this, and you wanted to get married. So you got married. God gave you what you wanted. But shortly after, maybe a long time after, whatever, at some point, you realize the person you married isn't as great as you thought. You realize, you know, marriage isn't, like the person you thought was like here, they're actually like over here. So even after you get married, you realize that there's still a gap between what you want and what you have. So in that way, earthly marriage is supposed to make you discontent. When you realize that your spouse is not as awesome as Jesus Christ. And it's supposed to, again, direct us to our need for Jesus Christ. Next, God's plan for us sometimes involves pain. Whenever we make life decisions, calling and choice work together, right? So from God's perspective, God calls. But from our perspective, like we're not really sure, but like we choose. From our perspective, we choose. We have different options. We choose. And later on, in hindsight, we can say, have the assurance that God called me to that. So, for example, our sovereign God opens a door for a new job. And we're praying, like, we, like he opens a door, so he's maybe calling. But then, from our perspective, we're praying, we're seeking God's will, and we choose to take that job. Same thing in marriage. God calls you to move forward with this person. From your perspective, you make the decision to say, let's get married, and, and, and you move forward. So calling and choice work together. That's also the case in singleness. Calling and choice work together, but usually after some time, God's calling and my choice don't coincide. God's still calling me to singleness, but I don't choose to be single. I wouldn't if I had, you know, if I could make that decision in the moment. And that's when singleness gets difficult. There are many forms of unwanted callings in life. For example, a married couple wants to have children but can't. Your spouse passes unexpectedly. Parents 
lose a child to sickness at a far too early age. None of these we would choose for ourselves, but God is calling them to identify with him through various forms of sufferings. And you see, singleness is no different. Just like when some, something difficult happens, there's suffering, and singleness, something isn't happening, so there's suffering. They're both unwanted, unexpected, lingering sufferings. I had someone, and I lost that person, so I'm mourning. I always wanted someone, and I lost that person, so I'm mourning. So we should be highly sensitive to people in those situations. It would be terribly insensitive to, to tell someone who just lost a loved one to just be content with God. There's no way we would say that. The same way we, should, we shouldn't tell singles who want to be married to just be content with Jesus. And that also means that singles shouldn't feel bad or guilty for longing to be married. Even the Apostle Paul, who says it's better not to marry, acknowledges that not everyone has the gift that he has, that some have a greater desire to be married. And he says that that desire is not wrong. It's actually good. So being called to singleness does not mean that you're, that you're not supposed to have the desire for marriage. Next, trust in God who knows what's best for you. God is omniscient, which means that God knows everything. That means God knows, the, the fact that God knows everything means that God knows all things actual and all things possible. It means that God not only knows the future of what's actually going to happen, but he knows all possible futures. I mean, that's a crazy thing if you think about it. God knows all possible outcomes of every possible situation. And, of course, that means there are exponential possibilities, and God knows all of that, what will happen in every possible situation. Now, since God knows what would happen in every possible situation, that means he knows what's best for us. That's one of the many reasons why we can trust that how he orchestrates our lives is good. Sometimes I'm sitting around with my kids and I randomly feel the need to be loved. So I ask them, hey, boys, is that the best dad in the whole wide world? The older kids, they've heard me say things like that long enough, so they don't even look at me anymore. They go, yes. The youngest one still thinks it's funny. He goes, no, mom's the best mom. He thinks that's funny, but it's not. <laughs> the third one does neither of those. He goes, well, is that the best dad? Well, I don't know, because you're the only dad I have. I don't know how other dads are. And I'm like, dude, I'm not looking for some scientific analysis here. <laughs> Just say yes. But what he's saying is true. Like, how can I say you're the best dad in the world when my knowledge is so limited? I don't know who else or what else is out there. And that's the correct answer, obviously, in that situation. But sadly, that's often how we treat God. We don't like the situation or life situation that we find ourselves in. 
So we start questioning God. God, why is this happening in my life? Why is this not happening in my life? And we doubt the goodness of God to us, basically saying to God, I might want a better dad than you. But we have to remember again that God's knowledge is not limited. He's omniscient. He knows what could possibly happen in every possible situation, so he knows exactly what is best for us. And in his goodness, he orchestrates our lives according to what he says is best. We have to trust that what God says is good for us, better than the life that we would orchestrate for ourselves. One, two, three, four, five. Sixthly, use your singleness to serve the Lord. Use your singleness to serve the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.32, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. Next slide. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and think, and uh, thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided in the same way a woman who is no longer married, has never been married, can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her responsibilities and how to please her husband. And so these verses challenges, they challenge us to live for the Lord in your singleness. Because what this means is, in your singleness, you can do what married people cannot do. Right? A gift. In the Bible, a gift is something that God gives you so that you can serve God and build up others. And time, you can say, is a gift that God gives us so that we can serve God with it. Because if time, now, if time is a gift, that's, then singles have the gift of more time. As long as God gives you that gift, use it for the Lord. And in a broader sense, we can say that singleness is a gift given by God that we can use to serve the Lord. Again, Marshall Siegel says, marriage murders spontaneity. He says, marriage murders spontaneity. He goes, one of your greatest spiritual gifts as a single person is your yes. Yes to random phone conversations. Yes to coffee. Yes to help with the move. Yes to stepping in when someone's sick. Yes to late night movie or special event downtown. You have the unbelievable freedom to say yes when married people can't even ask the question. When a spouse does not exist, you can't hurt them with your selfless, impulsive decisions. By willing to say, be willing to say yes and bless others even when you don't always feel like it. So use your singleness to serve the Lord and to serve others. Last thing on the list, embrace the shame of singleness. It's humbling to be single after a certain age, largely because people make you feel like you're subhuman. Oh, you're still not married? And they say it as if you need to find someone and be saved from the shame of singleness. But that is the accurate picture of us spiritually. The Bible says that we're all sinners that need to be saved by the bridegroom. If, and if you trust in Jesus Christ, by his grace, you've been married to Christ. And now, in that state of being married to Christ, you're longing, 
waiting for the return of the bridegroom. The single person is often acutely aware of this spiritual reality because the loneliness and the longing for a marriage partner is only a glimpse of this unfulfilled longing that all of God's people experience. So God is calling the single person to identify in humility with a humanity in need of her bridegroom. So go through your singleness in godly humility, picturing the longing church. There are many different ways that God calls us to go through suffering for some redemptive purpose. When God calls us to go through something like that, that calling is actually supposed to be hard by the design of God. Because there is no easy cross that displays and points to Christ. So embrace the difficulty of singleness and point to the beauty of the coming bridegroom. That's a picture of the longing that we're all supposed to have toward Christ. God gives us the grace to feel that longing in singleness that can easily be forgotten in the state of marriage. Uh, before I close, let me just say one last thing. And, uh, and it's concerning same-sex attraction. The struggle with same-sex attraction is a very real struggle. And I think understanding what the Bible says about singleness will help us to answer the questions raised by same-sex attraction because the principles are the same. The question that's often raised is that if, if same-sex relationship is wrong, then why do I have this desire? I really want God to take it away. So why, does, so why doesn't God take it away if it's wrong? But the Bible does teach that the presence of a desire in our hearts does not mean that God means for us to satisfy that desire. That's the case with a lot of desires that we deal with and struggle with in our hearts. And it's the same in singleness. You might have the desire for marriage that is not fulfilled. But a single person is still supposed to refrain from sex outside of marriage. A single person is supposed to trust God with that desire and persevere with that desire in obedience to God's will. And that understanding can help us to deal with same-sex attraction. Whether I'm called to singleness for this reason or for that reason, in either case, I'm called to a life of obedience to God's will, even with this lingering desire in my heart. And we know, and we can always trust, that God will enable us to do what he called us to do. In our singleness, he will enable us with the strength and the grace that he provides to go through this calling in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to him. Let's, our, let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer. We talked about on Friday how we need to have certain biblical principles guiding us as we think about dating. The world says something so different. My heart left to myself says something so different. But we realize as we look at scripture, 
a God-honoring, kingdom-seeking-first way of approaching dating might be radically different. That's what the Bible is calling us to. And in that same light, the broader picture of what it means to live my singleness for the Lord, what it means to live out my marriage calling for the Lord, it's really rooted not in my desires and my preferences, what I want to do left to myself, but it's really guided by biblical principles of what it means to live for the kingdom of God, to picture Christ in the church, to picture the longing of the returning bridegroom that this world needs to see. May we take these principles and treasure them within our hearts that we might be undeniable, clear, shining signposts in this world for a world that is in need of the hope of Jesus Christ. Let's just take a moment to pray before we close our time together. Father, we once again thank you for your word. We realize so often the contrast, stark contrast between our natural heart's desire perspective versus kingdom perspective, what it means to live for the kingdom of God, the very principles that, that Jesus came with as he inaugurated the kingdom of God. We just pray that you renew our minds with the word and um, that you would change our desires and help us really conform to the principles that you want us to live with as kingdom citizens, that there might be true joy, true happiness that we can experience in our lives as we submit our desires to you. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you that in all of our various callings, whatever it is that you call us to, along with that comes the power and the enabling grace to follow you and to obey you. So we thank you that we can trust in you even in the most difficult challenges in our lives. We can trust in the word of God and place our hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that you would really renew our minds to your word and strengthen our hearts as we try to think through these things and apply these principles in our lives. Pray that you would bless even our further discussions concerning it and that you would show yourself more clearly through those things. 
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his incredible love of the Father God, fellowship and strength, the power of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever.